Hi, everybody. Carla here. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. If I could ask you to please take a moment to answer the poll from the last episode, I'd really appreciate it. Also, if you have family or friends or anyone who you think might enjoy this content, please share this podcast link with them. As always, you can write to me at Carla reads the classics at gmail.com or simply leave your comment in the replies to the episodes on Spotify and anchor users. My voicemail is always on. And now without further delay, I give you E Lockhart's we were liars. Giveaways childhood art botanic prints. I get my laundry basket from Windermere and head to cuddle down. Mirren meets me on the porch, skipping around. It's so amazing to be on the island, she says. I can't believe I'm here again. You were here last summer. It wasn't the same, no summer ideal like we used to have. They were doing construction on New Claremont. Everyone was acting miserable and I kept looking for you, but you never came. I told you I was going to Europe. Oh, I know. I wrote you a lot. I say, it comes out reproachful. I hate email, says Mirren. I read them all, but you can't be mad at me for not answering. It feels like homework, typing and staring at the stupid phone or the computer. Did you get the doll I sent you? Mirren puts her arms around me. I missed you so much, you can't even believe how much. I sent you that Barbie, the one with the long hair we used to fight over. Princess Butterscotch? Yeah. I was crazy about Princess Butterscotch. You hit me with her once. You deserved it. Marin jumps around happily. Is she at Windermere? What? No, no, I sent her in the mail, I say, over the winter. Marin looks at me, her brows furrowed. I never got her cadence. Someone signed for the package. What did your mom do? Shove it in a closet without opening it? I'm joking, but Marin nods. Maybe she's compulsive, like she scrubs her hands over and over, makes taft, and the twins do it too. Cleans like there's a special place in heaven for people with spotless kitchen floors. Also, she drinks too much. Mummy does too. Mirren nods. I can't stand to watch. Did I miss anything at supper last night? I didn't go. Mirren heads onto the wooden walkway that leads from Cuddle Down to the tiny beach. I follow. I told you I wasn't going this summer. Why didn't you come over here? I got sick. We all know about your migraines, says Mirren. The aunts have been talking. I flinch. Don't feel sorry for me, okay? Not, not ever. It makes my skin crawl. Didn't you take your pills last night? They knocked me out. We have reached the tiny beach. Both of us go barefoot across the damp sand. Marin touches the shell of a long dead crab. I want to tell her that my memory is hacked, that I have a traumatic brain injury. I want to ask her everything that happened summer 15. Make her tell me stories mummy doesn't want to talk about or doesn't know. But there is Marin, so bright. I want her to feel... I don't want her to feel more pity for me than she already does. Also, I am still mad about the email she didn't answer, and the loss of the stupid Barbie, though I'm sure it's not her fault. Are Johnny and Gat at Redgate, or did they sleep at Cuddledown? I ask. Cuddledown? God, they're slobs. It's like living with goblins. Make them move back to Redgate, then. No way, laughs Marin. And you, no more Windmere, okay? You'll move in with us. I shake my head. Mummy says no. 
I asked her this morning. Come on, she has to let you. She's all over me since I got sick, but that's nearly two years. Yeah, she watches me sleep. Plus, she lectured me about bonding with Granddad and the Littles. I have to connect with the family, put on a smile. That's such bullshit. Marin shows me a handful of tiny purple rocks she's collected. Here. No, thanks. I don't want anything I don't need. Please take them, says Marin. I remember how you used to always search for purple rocks when we were little. She holds her hand out to me, palm up. I want to make up for Princess Butterscotch. There are tears in her eyes and the email and the emails, she adds. I want to give you something, Katie. Okay, then, I say. I cut my hands and let Marin pour the rocks into my palms. I store them in the front pocket of my hoodie. I love you, she shouts. Then she turns and calls out to the sea. I love my cousin, Caden Sinclair Eastman. Overdoing it much? It is Johnny padding down the steps with bare feet, dressed in old flannel pajamas with a ticking stripe. He's wearing wraparound sunglasses and white sunblock down his nose like a lifeguard. Marin's face falls, but only momentarily. I am expressing my feelings, Johnny. That is what being a living, breathing human being is all about. Hello? Okay, living, breathing human being, he says, biffing her lightly on the shoulder. But there's no need to do it so loudly at the crack of dawn. We have the whole summer in front of us. She sticks out her bottom lip. Katie's only here four weeks. I can't get ugly with you this early, says Johnny. I haven't had my pretentious tea. He bends and looks in the laundry basket at my feet. What's in there? Botanic prints and some of my old art. How come? Johnny sits on a rock and I settle next to him. I'm giving away my things, I say. Since September, remember I sent you the stripy scarf? Oh, yeah. I tell about giving the things to people who can use them, finding the right homes for them. I talk about charity and questioning mummy's materialism. I want Johnny and Mirren to understand me. I am not someone to pity with an unstable mind and weird pain syndromes. I am taking charge of my life. I live according to my principles. I take action and make sacrifices. You don't, I don't know, want to own stuff? Johnny asks me. Like what? Oh, I want stuff all the time, says Johnny, throwing his arms wide. A car, video games, expensive wool coats. I like watches. They're so old school. I want real art for my walls, paintings by famous people I could never in a million years afford. Fancy cakes I see in bakery windows, sweaters, scarves, woolly items with stripes, generally. Or you could want beautiful drawings you made when you were a kid, says Mira, kneeling by the laundry basket. Sentimental stuff. She picks up the crayon drawing of Gran with the Goldens. Look, this one is Fatima and this one is Prince Philip. You can tell? Of course, Fatima had that chubby nose and wide face. God, Mirren, you're such a mushball, Johnny says. Gat calls my name as I am heading up the walkway to New Claremont. I turn and he's running at me, wearing blue pajama pants and no shirt. Gat, my Gat. Is he going to be my Gat? He stops in front of me, breathing hard. His hair sticks up, bedhead. The muscles of his abdomen ripple, and he seems much more naked than he would in a swimsuit. Johnny said you were down at the tiny beach, he pants. I looked for you there first. Did you just wake up? 
He rubs the back of his neck, looks down at what he's wearing. Kind of. I wanted to catch you. How come? Let's go to the perimeter. We head there and walk the way we did as children, Gat in front and me behind. We crest a low hill, then curve back behind the staff building to where the vineyard harbor comes into view near the boathouse. Gat turns so suddenly I nearly run into him, and before I can step back, his arms are around me. He pulls me to his chest and buries his face in my neck. I wrap my bare arms around his torso, the insides of my wrist against his spine. He is warm. I didn't get to hug you yesterday, Gat whispers. Everyone hugged you but me. Touching him is familiar and unfamiliar. We have been here before. Also, we have never been here before. For a moment, or for minutes, for hours possibly, I am simply happy, here with Gat's body beneath my hands, the sound of the waves and his breath in my ear, glad that he wants to be near me. Do you remember when we came down here together? He asks into my neck. The time when we went out on that flat rock? I step away because I don't remember. I hate my fucking hacked up mind. How sick I am all the time. How damaged I've become. I hate that I've lost my looks and failed school and quit sports and am cruel to my mother. I hate how I still want him after two years. Maybe Gap wants to be with me. Maybe. But more likely, he's just looking for me to tell him he did nothing wrong when he left me two summers ago. He'd like me to tell him I'm not mad, that he's a great guy. But how can I forgive him when I don't even know exactly what he's done to me? No, I answer. It it must have slipped my mind. We were, you and I, we... It was an important moment. Whatever. I say, I don't remember it, and obviously nothing that happened between us was particularly important in the long run, was it? He looks at his hands. Okay, sorry, that was extremely suboptimal of me just now. Are you angry? Of course I'm angry, I say. Two years of disappearance, never calling and not writing back and making everything worse by not dealing. Now you're all, oh, I thought I'd never see you again, and holding my hand, and everyone hugs you but me, and half-naked perimeter walking? It's severely suboptimal, Gat, if that's the word you want to use. His face falls. It sounds awful when you put it that way. Yeah, well, that's how I see it. He rubs his hand on his hair. I'm handing I'm handling everything badly, he says. What what would you say if I asked you to start over? God, Gat. What? Just ask. Don't ask what I'd say if you did ask. Okay, I'm asking. Can we start over, please, Katie? Let's start over after lunch. It'll be awesome. I'll make amusing remarks and you'll laugh. We'll go troll hunting. We'll be happy to see each other. You you'll think I'm great, I promise. That's a big promise. Okay, maybe not great, but at least I at least I won't be suboptimal. Why say suboptimal? Why not say what you really are? Thoughtless and confusing and manipulative. God, Gat jumps up and down in agitation. Cadence, I really need to just start over. This is going from suboptimal down to total crap. He jumps and kicks his legs out like an angry little boy. The jumping made me smile. Okay. I tell him, start over after lunch. All right, he says, and and stops jumping. After lunch, we stare at each other for a moment. I'm going to run away now, says Gat. Don't take it personally. Okay. It's better for the starting over if I run, because walking will just be awkward. I said okay. 
Okay, then. And he runs. I go to lunch at New Claremont an hour later. I know Mummy will not tolerate my absence after I missed supper last night. Granddad gives me a tour of the house while the cook sets out food and the aunts corral the littles. It's a sharp place, shining wood floors, huge windows, everything low to the ground. The halls of Claremont used to be decorated floor to ceiling with black and white family photographs, paintings of dogs, bookshelves, and Granddad's collection of New Yorker cartoons. New Claremont's halls are glass on one side and blank on the other. Granddad opens the doors to the four guest bedrooms upstairs. All are furnished only with beds and low, wide dressers. The windows have white shades that let some sunlight in. There are no patterns on the bedspreads. They are simple, tasteful shades of blue or brown. The littles room have some life. Taft has a Bakugan arena on the floor, a soccer ball, books about wizards and orphans. Liberty and Bonnie brought magazines and an MP3 player. They have stacks of Bonnie's books on ghost hunters, physics, and dangerous angels. Their dresser is cluttered with makeup and perfume bottles, tennis rackets in the corner. Granddad's bedroom is larger than the others and has the best view. He takes me in and shows me the bathroom, which has handles in the shower. Old person handles, so he won't fall down. Where are your New Yorker cartoons? I ask. The decorator made decisions. What about the pillows? The what? You had all those pillows with embroidered dogs. He shakes his head. Did you keep the fish? What? The, the swordfish and all that. We walk down the staircase to the ground floor. Granddad moves slowly, and I am behind him. I started over with this house, he says simply. That old life is gone. He opens the door to his study. It's as severe as the rest of the house. A laptop sits in the center of a large desk. A large window looks out over the Japanese garden. A chair, a wall of shelves, completely empty. It feels clean and open, but it isn't It feels clean and open, but it isn't Spartan because everything is opulent. Granddad is more like mummy than like me. He's erased his old life by spending money on a replacement one. Where's the young man? Asked Granddad suddenly. His face takes on a vacant look. Johnny? He shakes his head. No, no. Gat? Yes, the young man. He clutches the desk for a moment as if feeling faint. Granddad, are you okay? Oh, fine. Gad is at Cuddle Down with Mirren and Johnny, I tell him. There was a book I promised him. Most of your books aren't here. Stop telling me what's not here, Granddad yells, suddenly forceful. You okay? It is Aunt Carrie standing in the door of the study. I'm all right, he says. Carrie gives me a look and takes Granddad's arm. Come on, lunch is ready. Did you get back to sleep? I asked my aunt as we head toward the kitchen. Last night, was Johnny up? I don't know what you're talking about, she says. 
Granddad's cook does the shopping and preps the meals, but the aunties plan all the menus. Today we have cold roast chicken, tomato basil salad, camembert, baguettes, and strawberry lemonade in the living room. Liberty shows me pictures of cute boys in a magazine. Then she shows me pictures of clothes in another magazine. Bonnie reads a book called Collective Apparitions, Fact and Fiction. Taft and Will want me to take them tubing, drive the small motorboat while they float behind in an inner tube. Mummy says I'm not allowed to drive the boat on Ned's. Aunt Carrie says that doesn't matter because no way is Will going tubing. Aunt Bess says she agrees, so Taft better not even think about asking her. Liberty and Bonnie ask if they can go tubing. You always let Marin go, says Liberty. You know it's true. Will spills his lemonade and soaks a baguette. Granddad's lap gets wet. Tap gets hold of the wet baguette and hits Will with it. Mummy wipes the mess while Bess runs upstairs to bring Granddad clean trousers. Carrie scolds the boys. When the meal is over, Taft and Will and Will duck into the living room to avoid helping with the cleanup. They jump like lunatics on Granddad's new leather couch. I follow. Will is runty and pink, like Johnny, hair almost white. Taft is taller and very thin, golden and freckled, with long dark lashes and a mouthful of braces. So, you two, I say, how was last summer? Do you know how to get an ash dragon in Dragonvale? Asks Will. I know how to get a scorched dragon, says Taft. You can use the scorched dragon to get an ash dragon, says Will. Ugh, ten-year-olds. Come on, last summer, I say. Tell me, did you play tennis? Sure, says Will. Did you go swimming? Yeah, says Taft. Did you go boating with Gat and Johnny? They both stopped jumping. No. Did Gat say anything about me? I'm not supposed to talk to you about ending... I'm not supposed to talk about you ending up in the water and everything, says Will. I promised Aunt Penny I wouldn't. Why not? I ask. It'll make your headaches worse, and we have to leave the subject alone. Taft nods. She said if we make your headaches worse, she'll string us up by our toenails and take away the iPads. We're supposed to act cheerful and not be idiots. This isn't about my accident, I say. This is about the summer when I went to Europe. Katie, Taft touches my shoulder. Bonnie saw pills in your bedroom. Will backs away and sits on the far arm of the sofa. Bonnie went through my stuff and Liberty. God, you told me you weren't a drug addict, but you have pills on your dresser. Taft is petulant. Tell them to stay out of my room, I say. If you're a drug addict, says Taft, there is something you need to know. What? Drugs are not your friend. Taft looks serious. Drugs are not your friend, and also people should be your friends. Oh, my God. Would you just tell me what you did last summer, Pipsqueak? Will says, Taft and I want to play Angry Birds. We don't want to talk to you anymore. Whatever, I say. Go and be free. I step onto the porch and watch the boys as they run down the path to Redgate. All the windows in Cuddle Down are open when I come down after lunch. Gad is putting music on the ancient CD player. My old crayon art is on the refrigerator with magnets. Dad on top, Gran and the Goldens on the bottom. My painting is taped to one of the kitchen cupboards. A ladder and a big box of gift wrap stand in the center of the great room. Mirren pushes an armchair across the floor. 
I never liked the way my mother kept this place, she explains. I help Gat and Johnny move the furniture around until Mirren is happy. We take down Bess's landscape watercolors and roll up her rugs. We pillage the little's bedrooms for fun objects. When we are done, the great room is decorated with piggy banks and patchwork, patchwork quilts, stacks of children's books, a lamp shaped like an owl, big sparkling ribbons from the gift wrap box crisscross the ceiling. Won't Bess be mad you're redecorating? I ask. I promise you she's not setting foot in Cuddle Down for the rest of the summer. She's been trying to get out of this place for years. What do you mean? Oh, says Mirren lightly. You know, natter, natter, least favorite daughter, natter, natter, the kitchen is such crap. Why won't granddad remodel it, etc.? Did she ask him? Johnny stares at me oddly. You don't remember? Her memory is messed up, Johnny yells Mirren. She doesn't remember like half our summer 15. She doesn't, Johnny says. I thought, no, no, shut up right now, Mirren barks. Did you not listen to what I told you? When? He looks perplexed. The other night, says Mirren. I told you what Aunt Penny said. Chill, says Johnny, throwing a pillow at her. This is important. How can you not pay attention to this stuff? Mirren looks like she might cry. I'm sorry, all right, Johnny says. Gat, did you know about Cadence not remembering like most of summer 15? I knew, he says. See, Mirren says. Gat was listening. My face is hot. I am looking at the floor. No one speaks for a minute. It's normal to lose some memory when you hit your head really hard, I say finally. Did my mother explain? Johnny laughs nervously. I'm surprised Mummy told you, I go on. She hates talking about it. She said you're supposed to take it easy and remember things in your own time. All the aunties know, says Mirren. Granddad knows, the littles, the staff, every single person on the island knows, but Johnny, apparently. I know, says Johnny. I just didn't know the whole picture. Don't be feeble, says Mirren. Now is really not the time. It's okay, I say to Johnny. You're not feeble. You merely had a suboptimal moment. I'm sure you'll be optimal from now on. I'm always optimal, says Johnny. Just not the kind of optimal Mirren wants me to be. Gat smiles when I say the word suboptimal and pats my shoulder. We have started over. We play tennis. Johnny and I win, but not because I'm any good anymore. He's an excellent athlete, and Mirren is more inclined to hit the ball and then do happy dances without caring whether it's returning. Gat keeps laughing at her, which makes him miss. How is Europe? asks Gat as we walk back to Cuddle Down. My father ate squid ink. What else? We reach the yard and toss the rackets on the porch, stretch ourselves out on the grass. Honestly, I can't tell you much, I say. Know what I did while my dad went to the Coliseum? What? I lay with my face pressed into the tile of the hotel bathroom, stared at the base of the blue Italian toilet. The toilet was blue? Johnny asked, sitting up. Only you would get more excited over a blue toilet than the sights of Rome, moans Gat. Cadence, says Marin. What? Never mind. What? You say don't feel sorry for you, but then you tell a story about the base of the toilet, she blurts. It's seriously pitiful. What are we supposed to say? Also, going to Rome makes us jealous, says Gat. None of us has been to Rome. 
I want to go to Rome, says Johnny, lying back down. I want to see the blue Italian toilet so bad. I want to see the baths of Caracalla, says Gat, and eat every flavor of gelato they make. So go, I say. It's hardly that simple. Okay, but you will go, I say, in college or after college, Gat sighs. I'm just saying you went to Rome. I wish you could have been there, I tell him. Were you on the tennis court? Mummy asked me. I heard balls. Just messing around. You haven't played in so long. That's wonderful. My serve is off. I'm so happy you're taking it up again. If you want to hit with me tomorrow, say the word. She is delusional. I'm not taking up tennis again just because I played one single afternoon. And in no capacity do I ever want to hit with mummy. She will wear a tennis skirt and praise me and caution me and hover over me until I'm unkind to her. We'll see, I say. I probably strained my shoulder. Supper is outside in the Japanese garden. We watch the eight o'clock sunset in groups all around small tables. Taft and Will grab pork chops off the platter and eat them with their hands. You two are animals, says Liberty, wrinkling her nose. And your point is, says Taft. There's a thing called a fork, says Liberty. There's a thing called your face, says Taft. Johnny, Gat, and Mirren get to eat a cuddle down because they aren't invalids and their mothers aren't controlling. Mummy doesn't even let me sit with the adults. She makes me sit at a separate table with my cousins. They're all laughing and sniping at each other, talking with their mouths full. I stop listening to what they are saying. Instead, I look across to Mummy, Carrie, and Bess clustered around Granddad. There's a night I remember now. It must have been about two weeks before my accident, early July. We were all sitting at a long table on the Claremont lawn. Citronella candles burned on the porch. The littles had finished their burgers and were doing cartwheels on the grass. The rest of us were eating grilled swordfish with basil sauce. There was a salad of yellow tomatoes and a casserole of zucchini with a crust of Parmesan cheese. Gap pressed his leg against mine under the table. I felt lightheaded with happiness. The aunts toyed with their food, silent and formal with one another beneath the little shouts. Granddad leaned back, folding his hands over his abdomen. You think I should renovate the Boston house? He asked. A silence followed. No, Dad. Bess was the first to speak. We love that house. You always complain about the drafts in the living room, said Granddad. Bess looked around at her sister's. I don't. You don't like the decor, said Granddad. That's true. Mummy's voice was critical. I think it's timeless, said Carrie. I could use your advice, you know, Granddad said to Bess. Would you come over and look at it carefully? Tell me what you think. I, he leaned in. I could sell it too, you know. We all knew Aunt Bess wanted the Boston house. All the aunts wanted the Boston house. It was a $4 million house, and they grew up in it. But Bess was the only one who lived nearby and the only one with enough kids to fill the bedrooms. Dad, Carrie said sharply, you can't sell it. I can do what I want, said Granddad, spearing the last tomato on his plate and popping it in his mouth. You like the house as it is then, Bess, or do you want to see it remodeled? No one likes a waffler. I'd love to help with whatever you want to change, Dad. Oh, please, snapped Mummy. Only yesterday you were saying how busy you are, and now you're helping remodel the Boston house? He asked for our help, said Bess. He asked for your help. You cutting us out, Dad? Mummy was drunk. 
Granddad laughed. Penny, relax. I'll relax when the estate is settled. You're making us crazy, Carrie muttered. What was that? Don't mumble. We all love you, Dad, said Carrie loudly. I know it's been hard this year. If you're going crazy, it's your own damn choice, said Granddad. Pull yourself together. I can't leave the estate to crazy people. Look at the aunties now, summer 17. Here in the Japanese garden of New Claremont, Mummy has her arm around Bess, who reaches out to slice Carrie a piece of raspberry tart. It's a beautiful night, and we are indeed a beautiful family. I do not know what changed. Taft has a motto. I tell Marin, it is midnight. We liars are playing Scrabble in the cuddle-down great room. My knee is touching Gat's thigh, though. I am not sure he notices. The board is nearly full. My brain is tired. I have bad letters. Marin rearranges her tiles distractedly. Taft has what? A motto, I say, you know, like Granddad has. No one likes a waffler. Never take a seat in the back of the room intones Mirren. Never complain, never explain, says Gat. That's from Disraeli, I think. Oh, he loves that one, says Mirren. And don't take no for an answer, I add. Good Lord, Katie, shouts Johnny. Will you just build the word and let the rest of us get on with it? Don't yell at her, Johnny, says Mirren. Sorry, says Johnny. Will you pretty please with brown sugar and cinnamon make a fucking scrabble word? My knee is touching Gat's thigh. I really can't think. I make a short, lame word. Johnny plays his tiles. Drugs are not your friend, I announce. That's Taft's motto. Get out, laughs Merritt. Where did he come up with that? Maybe he had drug education at school. Plus, the twin snooped in my room and told him I had a dresser full of pills, so he wanted to make sure I'm not an addict. God, says Marin, Bonnie and Liberty are disasters. I think they're kleptomaniacs now. Really? They took my mom's sleeping pills and also her diamond hoops. I have no idea where they think they'll wear those earrings, where she wouldn't see them. Also, they are two people and it's only one pair. Did you call them on it? I tried with Bonnie, but they're beyond my help, Marin says. She rearranges her tiles again. I like the idea of a motto. She goes on. I think an inspirational quote can get you through hard times. Like what? asks Gat. Marin pauses, then says, Be a little kinder than you have to. We are all silenced by that. It seems impossible to argue with. Then Johnny says, Never eat anything bigger than your ass. You ate something bigger than your ass? I ask. He nods, solemn. Okay, Gat, says Marin. What's yours? Don't have one. Come on. Okay, maybe. Gat looks down at his fingernails. Do not accept an evil you can change. I agree with that, I say, because I do. I don't, says Marin. Why not? There's very little you can change. You need to accept the world as it is. Not true, says Gat. Isn't it better to be a relaxed, peaceful person? Marin asks. No, Gat is decisive. It's better to fight evil. Don't eat yellow snow, says Johnny. That's another good motto. Always do what you are afraid to do, I say. That's mine. Oh, please, who the hell says that, barks Mirren. Emerson, I think. I reach for a pen and write it on the backs of my hands. Left, always do what? Right, you are afraid to do. The handwriting is skewed on the right. 
Emerson is so boring, says Johnny. He grabs the pen from me and writes on his own left hand, no yellow snow. There, he says, holding up the result for display. That should help. Katie, I'm serious. We should not always do what we are afraid to do, says Mirren heatedly. We never should. Why not? You could die. You could get hurt. If you are terrified, there's probably a good reason. You should trust your impulses. So what's your philosophy then? Johnny asks her. Be a giant chicken head? Yes, says Marin. That and the kindness thing I said before. I follow Gat when he goes upstairs. I chase him down the long hall, grab his hand, and pull his lips to mine. It is what I am afraid to do, and I do it. He kisses me back. His fingers twine in mine, and I'm dizzy, and he's holding me up, and everything is clear, and everything is grand again. Our kiss turns the world to dust. There is only us, and nothing else matters. Then Gat pulls away. I shouldn't do this. Why not? His hand still holds mine. It's not that I don't want to. It's... I thought we started over. Isn't this the starting over? I'm a mess. Gat steps back and leans against the wall. This is such a cliche conversation. I don't know what else to say. Explain. A pause and then... You don't know me. Explain, I say again. Gat puts his head in his hands. We stand there, both leaning against the wall in the dark. Okay, here's part of it, he finally whispers. You've never met my mom. You've never been to my apartment. That's true. I've never seen Gat anywhere but Beechwood. You feel like you know me, Katie, but you only know the me who comes here, he says. It's it's just not the whole picture. You don't know my bedroom with the window onto the sha- uh, onto the air shaft, my mom's curry, the guys from school, the way we celebrate holidays. You don't you only know the me on this island where everyone's rich except me and the staff, where everyone's white except me, Jenny and Paolo. Who are Jenny and Paolo? Gat hits his fist into his palm. Jenny is the housekeeper. Paolo is the gardener. You don't know their names and they've worked here summer after summer. That's part of my point. My face heats with shame. I'm I'm sorry. But do you even want to see the whole picture? Gat asks. Could you even understand it? You won't know unless you try me, I say. I haven't heard from you in forever. You know what I am to your grandfather, what I've always been? What? Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. Have you read it? I shake my head. Heathcliff is a gypsy boy taken in and raised by this pristine family, the Earnshaws. Heathcliff falls in love with the girl, Catherine. She loves him too, but she also thinks he's dirt because of his background, and the rest of the family agrees. That's not how I feel. There's nothing Heathcliff Heathcliff can ever do to make these Earnshaws think he's good enough. And he tries. He goes away, educates himself, becomes a gentleman. Still, they think he's an animal. And? Then, because the book is a tragedy, Heathcliff becomes what they think of him, you know? He becomes a brute. The evil in him comes out. I heard it was a romance. Gat shakes his head. Those people are awful to each other. You're saying Granddad thinks you're Heathcliff? 
I promise you he does, says Gat, a brute beneath the pleasant surface, betraying his kindness and letting me come to this sheltered island every year. I've betrayed him by seducing his Catherine, his cadence, and my penance is to become the monster he always saw in me. I am silent. Gat is silent. I reach out and touch him. Just the feel of his forearm beneath the thin cotton of his shirt makes me ache to kiss him again. You know what's terrifying? Gat says, not looking at me. What's terrifying is he's turned out to be right. No, he hasn't. Oh, yes, he has. Gat, wait! But he has gone into his room and shut the door. I am alone in the dark hallway. And that'll do it for this reading of Elock Hart's We Were Liars. Thank you so much for joining me here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.